this weekend we are be, uh, concluding a series, a four-week series called Operation. And uh, in this series, we've just been looking through um, some of the themes of the original Operation board game and walking through that. And today we're looking at the theme of broken heart. And as a staff, we sat down several months ago, we, and we looked at this as a staff, and we're planning through some things, and we thought, what better way to talk about this subject than to bring somebody in who has lived it, who has lived having a broken heart and seeing God come through the only way God can, and to restore that and pick up the broken pieces. And so well, we asked Joe Anderson to come and join us this weekend, and um, I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, last service was incredible. He has an incredible story. An incredible story, and an incredible story of how God redeems a situation and uses it for his good. And so, uh, without further ado, Life Church, would you help me give a big warm welcome to our guest speaker today, Joe Anderson. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Life Church. It is great to be with you today, this weekend. And uh, I've heard so many great things about your church and your pastor, Pastor Aaron, and your staff, and a lot of different connections, a lot of mutual friends and people that we know. And so it is great to be with you. And I don't know if you, if you realize this or not, because sometimes you don't, but you guys have a great pastoral staff, a great team here, a great thing going on. So you should give them a big hand and be thankful about that. And uh, here in Germantown and at the West Campus, I just have to tell you, where I, that my staff position at the last church I was at, I was a campus pastor. And so at the West Campus, you guys have a special place in my heart. I love you. I'm here with you. So let's give them a big hand at the West Campus, Pastor Jeremy. It's great. So I get to share with you today, as you're in this series in operation, and I feel like the kind of the, the clown head of operation, the guy that's behind me, has been following me because my, I picked up at a garage sale last week the board game operation. And so my kids have been playing it all week, and then here I am at Life Church, and I see the big sign with the clown face. My kids think it's the greatest thing in the world, like you did all of this just for them, um, and I'm loving it too. So it's great to be here and be able to share as part of this series. And as I talk about a broken heart today, I'm going to be sharing a lot of what has happened in my life. I'm just going to ask you to do something. That as you hear the story, there can be a tendency to kind of compare or say, yeah, my life has been worse than that, or my life's way better than that, or, or yeah, that's, that's a, a remarkable story, but so what? I'm just going to ask that you would let God speak to you about your story today. And I want to share some things that he has brought me through that would be an encouragement to you no matter what you're going through right now. And kind of to, to put some context to this, to frame what we're going to talk about, I want to look at some scripture found in the book of James. In James chapter 4, which is really a chapter of the Bible that deals a lot with surrender to Christ, of submitting our lives to him. And James 4, starting with verse 6 through verse 10, I'd like to read this. You can follow along on the screens. It says, But he gives us more grace... And that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we could stop right there and spend the whole weekend talking about that, that God opposes, he stands in opposition to prideful, arrogant people, but he gives grace generously to the humble, to people who would follow him, who would lay down their lives for him, who would trust him with everything. God Opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Goes on to say, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's kind of depressing. If we're honest, you look at that and it's change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, what, is this, what, what is the Bible saying? What does God have to say to us about that? But it really is all wrapped up in this final verse, in verse 10. And this is the key, I believe, to everything. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, and therefore we should humble ourselves before him, give our lives to Jesus Christ, and he will lift us up. And that was something I had to learn the hard way. Even though I was raised in a Christian family, I mean, third generation Christian, both sets of grandparents loved the Lord, they talked to me about Jesus. I was at church every Sunday morning for, for Sunday school, the service at Sunday nights, in the choir, Wednesday night youth group, and there was never a time growing up where I didn't feel God's presence, where I didn't sense that he was near me. Um, I was saved at a very young age, and, and even when I was about 13 years old at a, at a youth retreat, I remember going forward and praying, and I was at the altar, I was at the front, and I felt this distinct call that God wanted me to be a pastor when I got older. And I was super excited about that. Two of my uncles were pastors, and I thought, I'm going to grow up and be just like them. I, I want to serve God. I want to be a pastor. And I remember going to, to back to school the, the next following weeks, and I would talk to people about it. I told my parents, I told my friends, and, and I remember I came to this time in one of the classes where I had to write a paper on what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What are you going to be when you grow up? And I had a little bit of a dilemma because I also had a strong desire to be a professional wrestler, okay? Like, I was really into the WWF, and I, I love professional wrestling, and I thought, you know what? I want to be a wrestler when I get older. I want to I do that, and how can I do that and be a pastor? And so in this paper, true story, I reconciled how I was going to do both. I said, on Saturday nights, I'll be a professional wrestler, and then I'll get in my plane, and I'll fly to my church, and on Sunday mornings, I'll be a pastor, Okay, the only problem is, as a wrestler, I've got a really boring name. My name is Joe Anderson. That's super vanilla. How are we going to get around this? And so I said, I'm going to reconcile being a pastor and a wrestler by this. My identity, my persona, my finishing move, it's going to be called the pastorizer. Okay, just devastating, powerful, there it is. The wrestling part hasn't worked out, but the pastor part kind of has. So I, I moved on, and you know, I was, I was uh, leading a Bible study at, at my school in junior high and high school, and, and people knew me as a Christian. They'd call me like the preacher guy or the pastor guy, and uh, everyone knew that I was a Christian. They knew what I was all about. And then something happened in my life that is kind of a common story. It's, unfortunately, this has happened to a number of people who were raised in the church. When I got out of high school, I looked around, and I saw the world, and I saw what the squeaky clean lifestyle that I'd lived, and I kind of thought, well, I've never really done some of these bad things and gotten involved in these difficulties that I've seen other people get involved with. Maybe I've missed out on some fun. And I thought, what if I just got off this straight and narrow road for just a little bit of time, just for a season? What if I stepped off that? What would be the harm? You know, and there's a verse in the Bible in Proverbs 14, 12. It says, before every person is a wide and pleasant road that seems right, that looks right, but in the end, it leads to death. 
And I began to go down that road, and I was drinking alcohol, and I was doing some things that I shouldn't have been. I was hanging out with people that I shouldn't have been. And I, I, I really thought, you know, the first time I went to church, I was like, wow, I didn't get struck by lightning. Like, everything's okay, and nobody knows. And I, I w- really, I was compartmentalizing my life. I was like, here's my Christian life that I'm going to present to people at church, but then here are these other things that I'm just going to kind of keep for myself. And I became... I got really good at hiding things, and I was drinking behind my parents' back and a lot of my friends and a lot of people who knew me. They didn't know that I was struggling with alcoholism because I can look back now and clearly see that I was becoming addicted. And I, I would tell myself I can quit anytime I want. I can, I can change. I can, I can get past this anytime I need to because I have the rest of my life to live that lifestyle that's clean. And I joined the military, and I was there, and I, these guys didn't even know that I drank, and I was saving up some money for school, and it finally came to the time where I thought, okay, now I'm going to change, and I, I enrolled in Bible college, and I went to North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, and, and when I went there, my, my thinking was, I'm going to walk through the doors um, the first day of school, and all of these sins and struggles and addiction and lust and all that that I had kind of developed in my life was just going to fall off me. And there's a saying in recovery that is very, very true, and it's, wherever you go, there you are. And a lot of times people will try and run away from their problems or their addictions, think if I just got a new job, if I just went to a new school, if I just moved to a new different neighborhood, if I could just get out of the city, then everything would change. And then they find that those same problems and struggles are wherever they're at because the problem is with us. Well, it was one of the first days of school and actually it was before even the, the rest of the students were there, just the, the first time students were getting enrolled and everything. And I was walking down one of the hallways and I saw these three young ladies walking towards me, and one of them was just gorgeous, and I thought, I've got to stop and talk to her and meet her and start dating her before someone else does, and I'll never have the odds that I'll have right now because there's a bunch of guys that haven't even come to the school yet. And we stopped, and we started talking, and remember we exchanged names, and um, she said her name was Jennifer Papard. And that, that kind of like made a light go off in my head because I was a huge fan of the TV show, The A-Team, okay? And I know there's some of you that are like closet A-Team fans and you ought to be proud of that. That's a great show. I'm talking old school A-Team. And George Pard, he was the actor who was the main character in there and he would say in every episode this line that I just love. He would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And so when she said her name was Jennifer Papard, I said, are you by any chance related to George Papard? And she said, yeah, actually I am. He's like a distant relative. And I said, that is so cool. And then she looked at me right in the eyes, and she said something that I'll never forget. And she said these words, I love it when a plan comes together. And I was like, that's it. You're the one for me. I dropped to my knees. I was looking for a ring. I was like, the heavens opened up. The angels were singing. I'm like, this is the girl in my dream. She's beautiful. She's really to George Bavard. What more can you ask for? And we started dating. And we just had so much fun together. But I was also, behind the scenes, struggling with my sin, with my addiction, with my alcoholism, with these things that I had kept in the shadows. And I was afraid that if I ever told her what I was really dealing with, that she wouldn't want to be around me, that she would just get away from me. And so I got really good at hiding things. And our relationship would kind of ebb and flow and we'd be together and then we'd break up and then she would sense that something wasn't right and I really cared for her and I really wanted to, to do the right thing but I just couldn't break free of this. And there were even times I remember while I was going through Bible college 
No one ever caught me. No one ever found out that I was struggling with this. And there were times I would go and I would pray in the chapel service and I would say, God, just zap me and take away this addiction. Just take it from me. And then I'd wait and nothing would happen. And that's a scary place to be. And I can look back now and see what was going on, that I was asking God to remove some of the consequences, some of the things in my life, without really giving him my life. I wasn't really surrendered to him. I was still compartmentalized. I was still holding back areas, and I just didn't want the bad consequences. So I would tell myself, I'm going to quit when I'm a sophomore. I'm going to quit when I'm a junior. I'm going to quit when I'm a senior. I'm going to quit on New Year's Day. I'm going to quit next Monday. That was always a good time to try and quit. And I would just blow past those deadlines, and it would get worse and worse and worse. And then as I was graduating from Bible college, I was interning at a church, and I was hoping to get on staff there. And um, I had proposed to my girlfriend. She said yes, and we were super excited. And we set our wedding date for October 26, 1996, almost 15 years ago. And she was from a little town in, in, uh, named Milford, Michigan, and just this quaint little community where her dad was the pastor of the church, and she had two younger sisters who were in high school, and just this great area to live, and everyone in the town knew her family and knew her dad as the pastor, and that was where our wedding was going to be. And so she was back at home getting ready for our wedding, and I was in Minneapolis the summer before our wedding thinking, I'm going to drink as much as I can now to get it out of my system, okay? which is a ridiculous thought, but we all do that in some ways, I think. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to get married and everything's going to change on this day. This was my new deadline. And I drove out to Michigan with my, my uh, friends, my groomsmen, the ushers, my best friends, my family. And I, we got there. And I remember that weekend. It was an absolutely beautiful weekend. The sky was blue. The leaves had all changed colors. The church was off this country road on, on some acreage. And back behind that was her parents' house. And we had the wedding there, and I remember all the pictures just being gorgeous, and it was just this beautiful occasion where everything went exactly as planned. And after the wedding, we took all of the, the gifts and the cards and the money that people gave us, and I mean, if you marry a pastor's daughter, you make a well. I mean, people want to give you a lot of gifts, and so we're like, this is awesome, this is incredible, and we moved all that back to her parents' house, and we hugged them and kissed them and said goodbye, and we were going to see them the next day to open the gifts. And we drove off to start our honeymoon. I remember that night being at the hotel and I set the wake-up call for the next morning and I was just laying in bed kind of drifting off to sleep thinking, life is good. Everything in my, in my life is going to change now. It's going to be totally different because I'm married and I'm going to be a pastor and I'm going to be on staff at a church. This is awesome. And I began to drift off to sleep in a complete dream world, having no idea that the next morning we would wake up in a total nightmare. I remember the phone started ringing at about 5.30 in the morning and I, I rolled over and I looked at the clock and I knew that that wasn't the time I had set the wake-up call. My first thought was, wow, they just messed up my wake-up call. And I, I reached for the phone and I, I lifted it up and I put it to my ear and I was thinking it was going to be a woman's voice from you know, the, the front desk or whatever and I'll never forget what I heard. It was, it was another woman's voice and she was babbling and screaming. And I knew something was terribly wrong. She's asking for my wife, and I, I hand her the phone, and we haven't even been married for 12 hours yet. And my new wife sits up in bed, and she's holding the phone, and she just starts saying, oh no, oh no, oh no. 
And then she threw the phone down on the bed and started running around the room in shock. Never seen anything like it. What we had found out that had happened was that earlier that morning, in the darkness and in the fog, because like I said, the, the, the night before when we got married, it was this beautiful autumn evening, but over the night, it got very windy, became cold, and it blew all the leaves off the trees, and then this fog rolled in, this, the thickest fog I've ever seen. And the whole town just looked like this evil Halloween scene. And everyone who was part of our wedding, they, they still talk about it to this day, that just had this eerie feel that morning. And early that morning in the darkness and the fog, a man walked up to the back of her parents' home. And he cut the phone line to their house and then broke into the basement door and went up the stairs to the main level. And he walked through the living room where we had all of our gifts and cards and everything piled up and he walked right past that. He wasn't there to steal anything. He then walked up the next flight of stairs to the upper level of the house. And there were two bedrooms up there, one where her parents were sleeping and the other where her two teenage sisters were sleeping. He walked into her parents' bedroom and turned on the lights and stood next to their bed. And he was on the side of the bed closest to her mom. And they began to wake up when the lights came on. And, and you know, they had been sleeping soundly because they had just given away their oldest daughter in marriage and had this great occasion. And he had that Sunday morning off from church and we were going to open up gifts and everything. And they wake up and they look. And standing next to their bed is a man wearing a ski mask and holding a 12-gauge shotgun. And her mom just looked up and she couldn't believe what she was seeing and she closed her eyes thinking it was a bad dream and just wanting it to go away. And this masked man began to lean over her with the shotgun. And he was pointing the barrel of the gun directly at my father-in-law, the pastor. And he sat up in bed and, and all he was able to do was just reach out his hand and the barrel of the gun was about two feet away from his chest when this masked man pulls the trigger and shoots him in the chest with a 12-gauge slug. And anyone who knows anything about hunting or guns knows that a 12-gauge slug, I mean, it'll drop a deer. It, it, it blew a softball-sized hole in his chest and went through his body and out his lower back and blew a hole through the wall and the bullet actually was embedded in the front yard and they had to use a metal detector and, and a shovel to dig the bullet out the next day. He fired that one shot and he turned and he ran out of the house. He didn't take anything. He didn't steal anything. He didn't do anything to anyone else. Well, in the home, they're, they're just in an absolute panic and they're running around and they're trying to call the police, but the phone doesn't work because the phone line has been cut. And her, her one sister had to run across a field in the darkness to a neighbor's house to call the police. And her mom was looking for a phone and she told their youngest daughter, Leah, who was 14 at the time, she said, you have to go up to your, your daddy and, and hold him down because he was writhing around, bleeding to death in pain. And Leah, who was going through kind of a rebellious stage in her life where for just no apparent reason she was just kind of mad at God and mad at her parents. She had to go into the bedroom and straddle her dad and hold a towel on his chest to keep him from bleeding to death. And as she was doing this, she was crying and bawling and, and pleading with him and she kept saying, Daddy, you can't die. I need you in my life right now. You can't leave me. And as he thought that he was dying, became very calm and he just looked her straight in the eye and he started saying these words to her over and over again. He said, serve Jesus, serve Jesus, 
serve Jesus. It seemed like an eternity, but about a half hour later, the police and the ambulance finally arrived and they came and they took him out and they couldn't believe that he was still alive after he'd lost all this blood. And they rushed him to the hospital and they immediately, the surgeons started to work on him and, and they, they couldn't believe that he was alive either. And they're working on him and I remember we, we show up at the hospital and there's news cameras there and people interviewing people and because he was a pastor who was well known in the community and they, no one could believe that he had been shot because everyone just loved him and he was such a happy man and they're asking questions and people from the church are showing up. We don't know who we can trust because the police were still looking for the man who shot him. And we were walking into the waiting room and seeing my mother-in-law and my two sister-in-laws and they're in their pajamas and they're just covered with blood. And we sat down and I look across from me and there's my wife who I had just gotten married to the night before. And she's wearing pajamas and she has her, her white wedding shoes on from the night before where her dad had walked her down the aisle because we were in such a rush to get out of the hotel. I remember thinking to myself, I cannot believe that this is happening to me. Because up to that point in my life, nothing bad had ever happened. I really hadn't encountered any storms of life or struggles or, or tragedies. And I'm like, this cannot be happening. This doesn't happen to me. And I also had this feeling of being very alone. Feeling like my foundation was not firm. Like my foundation was not on Christ. And I felt completely unprepared for what we were going through. And we were in the waiting room for a number of hours and the doctors were coming and going and they finally came and they said that he had made it through the surgery and that it was going to be touch and go and he'd be in a coma for the next few days as he was still going through the healing process. And they said it would be months of recovery if he made it over the next couple of days. And we spent that time sleeping on the hospital floor at times, the police would come and they would guard his room. At other times, they didn't have the manpower. And we'd take turns sitting in front of his room, guarding his room, because they were still looking for the man who shot him. And we thought he's going to come back and try and finish the job. And on top of just the fear of knowing that this man is out there, the hospital was under construction. And you know, you'd look down a hallway and there'd be like plastic hanging and wires and weird lighting. And then the power would go out like five times a day. And it felt like we were in the middle of a horror movie. And as we're waiting and we're thinking and we're praying and people all around the world were praying for my father-in-law, and I, I, I want you to hear this and to know this because I think sometimes today people, they just don't have the faith or, or the belief that God can still do miracles, that he can still heal us. Because this was an impossible situation with what my father-in-law was facing physically. And against all odds, he was able to walk out of the hospital 10 days after being shot in the chest. And we, we went to a, a house that was like a safe house so we could be protected. And when we were there, my father-in-law was still going through a lot of the recovery and everything, but, but it was a miracle that he was able to even walk. And, and to this day, 15 years later, he's still ministering. He's still a pastor. He's still preaching. He could walk in this room and you wouldn't even know that this had happened to him. And I believe that that was an absolute answer to prayer. And while we were there and we knew he was out of the woods medically, Remember, we had this decision that we had to make. And that was to go back to Minnesota. We had an apartment that we were in a job I was going to be working at and everything. And we were so young. We were 21 and 20. And I remember my wife, at that time, she wanted to be a daughter more than she wanted to be a wife. But she reluctantly went back with me. And the entire drive from Michigan to, to Minneapolis we were in this little U-Haul truck that would only go about 54 miles an hour and it rained the whole way and 
remember my wife Jen, she had her head on a pillow and was looking out the window crying and didn't say a word to me. We got into our apartment and I, we would immediately started fighting and we were both just dealing with the shock of what had happened and depression and, and she was mad over being away from her family and, and just kind of resentful about the whole situation. And, and I did the one thing that I thought that I would never do, that I promised I would never do. And I began to go out and drink behind her back and then lie about it. And all, all along, I'm going to church, I'm doing my internship, and, and we're fighting, and nobody knows about it. And we'd go to church, and we'd smile, and we'd act like everything was okay, like there was, just wasn't a care in the world. And, you know, praise God, her father-in-law is doing okay. And, yeah, it's kind of a scary situation as they look for this man. And, you know, to this day, they still haven't found him. And, and, but, but we're doing okay. And we would fight, and we'd say terrible things, and we'd argue, and I was drinking almost every day behind her back. About six months into our marriage, I went away. I was still in the, the military, and I had to go away for a weekend of training. And while I was there, I was, I'd been with these guys for years. They knew me very well. And uh, at the end of the weekend, they had a big party. And guys were drinking, and they thought that I just never touched alcohol. A lot of them thought I never had had a drink in my life. And at the end of the, this party, I thought, you know, what would the harm be if I just drank a little bit? So I, I started drinking with them a little bit, and they're like, hey, we finally got the preacher to drink. And then I got drunk. And then after that, some of them made a decision to go to a strip club. And I'm ashamed to say that I went with them. You're a newly married, newly licensed minister about to go on staff at a church who had talked to a lot of these guys about Jesus, I went and did that. The next morning when I woke up, the shame I felt was just immense. And I was in this big open bay barracks and I woke up and I was just thinking, what did I just do? And I looked around and there were two guys I saw in particular and I'll never forget this. They were looking at me. And one of these guys I had just led to Jesus and the other guy I had just prayed with the day before. It was like their eyes were piercing my soul. As if to say, you're a hypocrite. We don't even know you. And I didn't feel like I even knew myself. I got home later that day and I walked into our apartment and I started talking to my wife and we started fighting about something and I just couldn't do it anymore. I said, you know what, this is what I did. This is what I've been doing. And she said, I can't take this. I'm done. I'm out. She said, I'm going back to my family in Michigan, and she left. And I had to tell my pastor what I'd been doing. I had to tell my parents and my family and friends, and I had to turn in my license as a pastor. And it's like in one afternoon, everything that I'd worked for, everything that I'd hoped for in my life fell apart and crumbled. And for the first time in my life, the thought of killing myself actually became something that I contemplated. And instead of in that moment turning to God and turning to the people who are reaching out to me and, and, and humbling myself before him, I began to just reject him and get very hard towards God and go the other direction. Every day I would go to work in the morning, I'd come home and I would drink myself to sleep. And I was just in this downward spiral of depression and addiction and lust and alcoholism and all of this, this sin and burdens that were on me just began to pull me deeper and deeper. And our separation went on and on. And I finally came to a point where I knew I was either going to drink myself to death, to kill myself, or to get help. 
And I'd given up on God. I mean, there were a few times during this period where I would go to church and I would go and I would stand in the back and, and during the worship, during the singing, I, I would feel God pull on my heart and I would just get bitter and I would just walk out. I would feel that emotion welling up and I would turn and walk out the other way. And I came to this point where I knew I needed help and I went to a, a treatment facility and I didn't want to go to Teen Challenge because I, I felt like I was just rejecting God and I wanted to stay away from him. And I, so I go to this place and I remember while I'm there, I, I, the first day they show me the 12 steps and I didn't really know anything about the 12 steps and what it meant and I, I saw the first step and it says, we admit that we are powerless. And it was like in that moment in the secular place, God spoke to me through those words. It was like, Joe, admit that you're powerless. It was like God was saying, I don't want your alcoholism. I don't want your lust. I don't want your sin. I don't want your bad marriage. I don't want your history. I don't want all of these things that you've done. What I want is your life. What I want is you. It was like God was saying, humble yourself before me and I will lift you up. You don't have to clean yourself up. I'll do it for you. And that was the day, April 17th, 1999, that I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And he changed me. And I had to work at this by giving him my life every morning when I woke up and surrendered him because it wasn't one of these things where I never had a desire to drink again. I had to face this every day. And God brought me through that. I got out of treatment and I, I, I got involved in my church and with my pastor and a recovery group. And God was just doing miraculous things in my life. And at the same time, my wife was getting help back in Michigan and she was working through things in her own life. And after being separated for two years and ten months, and that everyone around us, our families, our friends, even pastors in our lives, we had just said, just give up, get a divorce, just start over, it's not worth it, there's no hope for you guys, look, your marriage was cursed. Against all of those odds, God brought us back together. And she came back to Minneapolis and, and I remember we moved into an apartment together and we looked at each other and it's like we didn't love each other, we didn't know each other, and we didn't even like each other. But God took a little step of obedience from two people saying, we'll do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. We'll humble ourselves before him so he can lift our marriage up. And he changed our hearts and he breathed life into our marriage. And I can tell you now, 15 years later, I mean, we're, later this month we're celebrating our anniversary, that I love my wife with all of my heart. I don't feel like I'm just in this marriage because I'm obligated. I love her with everything that is within me. And we have an awesome marriage. And it's all because God changed our lives. And we're growing in our relationship and we're at church and we're in a small group and we're around people and we're open and honest when we're struggling. We're able to talk to people. We were doing everything different from how we were when we first got married. And about a year into it, I was working on becoming a licensed minister again. That, that calling had never left me and I was helping out at the church and we decided we wanted to start a family. And so we got pregnant and we were super excited about that. I remember every night putting my hand on her stomach and praying for our unborn child and just thinking, this is awesome. And then the unthinkable happened and we had a miscarriage. And we tried again and had another miscarriage and then had a third and we lost three babies and it was just so difficult. We're thinking, God, look at all that we've been through. Look at all that has happened in our lives. You owe us one. All we want to do is just be parents. And I'll never forget the day of that, that miscarriage, the third time. 
My, my wrist was in a cast because I'd broken my hand and wrist really bad in the military after being activated after September 11th. And I had all these pins and it was swollen and it was aching and I'd run out of pain medicine that day and I had to be really careful with painkillers because of my addictive background. And I was thinking of all the days for this to happen. And we went to church that first weekend. And I remember walking in the doors and my wife was crying and I was holding back the tears and my wrist was throbbing. I was just thinking, God, where are you in all of this? And we were in the back and we really didn't want to be there, but we knew we needed to be around people and and, in God's presence. And as the worship was going on, I felt all those old feelings, that desire to get up and to walk out. But we didn't. And we just made a decision right there that we were going to worship God even in the midst of our pain and our broken hearts. And we just lifted our hands and began to worship him. And tears were streaming down our faces and one of the coolest things that's ever happened in my life happened in that moment. Some friends of ours that we were in a small group with who knew what we were going through, they saw us across the auditorium and they got up from where they were and they walked through over the rows of people and they came to us and they began to put their arms around us and to cry with us and to weep with us and to pray for us. And we knew right then that even though we didn't have the answers, even though there wasn't this big revelation of what was going to happen in our life or why this was happening, we knew that God loved us and that we could stay surrendered to him and he'd put people in our lives that we could go through life together and that they would be there and they would support us as we did this. And something was softened in our hearts in that moment. And I believe that if we hadn't had that experience, if we had just stayed at home and isolated ourselves, we would have gotten bitter and hard-hearted and angry at God. But instead, we were open and soft and saying, God, whatever you have for us, we'll do it. It was shortly after that we were invited to an adoption orientation. And while we were there, we both just, we were there just to inquire, but we felt very clearly that God was calling us to adopt. And we talked to the, the lady who was the director and she said, okay, be patient. It takes like a year to two years for this to go through. And we said, hey, whatever, whatever it takes. And we started the process and just an absolute miracle happened where six weeks later from the orientation to the day we flew down to North Carolina to pick up our baby girl. It only took six weeks. And we, we got her and the adoption agency was like, wow, you guys set the record for the fastest adoption at our agency. And we, we flew back to, to Minneapolis with our baby girl. And it just so happened to be Mother's Day 2003. And that was so cool because every Mother's Day in church, when the pastor would have all the moms stand up, my wife would just sit and hang her head and cry because she wanted to be a mom so badly. And we got in at like three o'clock that afternoon and church was already done and I had a key to the church and I told my wife, I said, you know what? I don't care. We're going to go to the church. You're going to sit on the front row with our baby girl and I'm going to go up on stage and have all the moms stand together because I want to honor you. And it was shortly after that we, we started the process to adopt again and we flew down to North Carolina again and we got our baby boy and we flew back over Father's Day the next year. And then our life is feeling so complete. We've got two babies and God has blessed us and I'm a, I'm a pastor at this time and, and it's like everything is just going great. And then my wife started feeling sick, especially in the morning. And we found out she was pregnant. Guys are a little slow on that. The women knew right away what I was talking about. But we found out she was pregnant and everything went perfect, just, just as perfectly as, as it could. And we had our baby girl. And so within 23 months, we went from having no kids to having three kids. And we're just like overwhelmed, but in a joyful kind of way, like up all night kind of way. And we're super excited. And we look at our kids, and I want you to see this picture of my family. Because when I look at my wife 
And we talk about this almost every day because we're just blown away by God's grace. When I look at my wife and my kids and what has happened in our lives, the fact that I'm sober and alive and serving God and in ministry and married and our children, I see that and I see, God, your grace is so amazing. It just blows me away because none of this should have happened. As bad as my life was in those dark moments, if someone would have told me that God was going to turn it all around, I would have said that's impossible. But he is the God of the impossible. And I, there's another picture of, of my kids and um, a little dog that we adopted recently, which I didn't like animals before, so that's another miracle that we got a dog. We got that, and then I'll, I'll, the, the final picture of our two boys. We're, we're in the process right now of adopting these twin boys from Haiti. They're in an orphanage right now, and uh, we're going to get them in the next few months. It's all getting finalized, and so their names are, uh, we're naming them Jimmy and Johnny. And then my other kids, so this, I'm Joe, my wife's name is Jen. And so it's Joe, Jen, Jojo, Joey, Jada, Jimmy, Johnny, and our dog's name is Judy. So very cheesy, I know, but what do you do? Name a kid Larry once you go down that road? You know, you're kind of stuck with the J's. But I, I see my family, I see what God has put in our hearts to reach out and to adopt and to have our family included that way. And it's, none of it has turned out the way I thought it would. But it's so much better than anything I could have possibly hoped for. God is good. He is faithful. He is amazing, and he wants to do a work in our lives. And I don't tell this story and show this picture to say, oh, isn't that cute that they're adopting and they have these kids and a nice family and a marriage that's been put back together. You'd be missing the whole point if that's all you thought this was about. Because what I want you to realize, if you have a broken heart, a broken body, a broken marriage, a fractured part of your heart that's dealing with addiction or pain or unforgiveness, that you need to know this very clearly, both here in Germantown at the West Campus or online, that God loves you, that he sent his, his son Jesus to die for you, and that he wants you to humble yourself before him so that he can lift you up. And if you will, he will change your life. I can promise you that. And my heart goes out to you because I know that when some people are in a struggle, they've lost hope and they've lost having faith and they don't think it's possible with that lost loved one. And, they just, and I just want to tell you today to respond to him, to trust him, to give him a chance to do something in your life. But it takes surrendering to him completely. The Apostle Paul was struggling with something. I want to close with this. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest men who have ever lived, he was struggling. We don't know what it was, if it was a, a physical ailment. He called it his thorn in the side. I mean, there was one commentary where they went over 22 different possible things. And I like that we don't know what that was because that means we can kind of apply it to our lives. He was struggling with this and he was praying that it would be taken away. And Jesus himself gave him an answer to his prayer. And he said this in 2 Corinthians 12.9. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Think about that. That in your brokenness, the power of Jesus Christ, the power that raised him from the dead, the power that created everything that you see is made perfect because of his grace. And that if you'll surrender to him, if you'll humble yourself before him, he will lift you up. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. 
And I'm not going to do this for me, but I want to do this for you. I'm not going to have you close your eyes or bow your heads because I believe this is an important moment and it's a moment that everyone can see. It's a moment that you can acknowledge and this might be something that you need to do to humble yourself before God. But I'm going to ask you to stand up where you're at. And this is, a general, this is a general invitation, but make it very specific to you. If you need to surrender your life to Jesus for the first time, if you're struggling with an addiction, you need to give that to him. If your marriage is in trouble, if you're, if you're standing up because you have a loved one or a friend that's just breaking your heart and God's telling you you need to let that go and trust him, then you need to stand today. But whatever it is, respond to him today and stand and say, I'm surrendering. I'm humbling myself before the Lord so he can lift me up in this situation. And then I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you at the, at the West Campus and here in Germantown or even online, just I'm going to ask where you're at to just have the courage to stand so that I can pray for you. I ask you to do that. Thank you. Thank you. It takes courage to do this, but you will never forget this moment that you stood. And the people here that are looking at you, they're cheering you on. At the West Campus, the people that are standing right now, the others are saying, do it, yes. And the greatest thing is that you don't have to stand alone. That moment that my wife and I shared when we were in church and we were crying and we were standing and the people came around us, that's something that I know you can experience here as well. I know that's the heart of Life Church, that there's people that you can do life together with and community and be in community with. So I'm going to ask wherever someone is standing that other people around them would just get up and move and just put a hand on their back. Nobody do anything weird, but just put a hand gently on their back and we're going to pray together. And nobody has to stand alone. And that's the beauty of being in community together, to be, of being one in Christ. That we can lift each other up, that we can pray with one another, that we can cry with one another, we can be there for those who are hurting, that are broken. God is close to the brokenhearted. And he is there to save you in your time of need. So let's join together and pray for everyone who stands. Dear Jesus, I thank you for those who have the courage to stand right now. We're standing at the West Campus in Germantown, even the people who are watching online who just stood, and God, that they're not standing alone, that we're with them. And God, I thank you that this weekend, this day, is a line in the sand. It's a marking moment for people saying, I'm surrendered to you, I'm submitting to you, I'm humbling myself before you. And that Jesus, the, the price that you paid on the cross is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for whatever it is we're going through, for whatever it is that we need. That your power is made perfect in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our struggles. God, I pray that you would shine your light in the darkness. God, for the marriages that are broken right now where everyone is thinking that it's just, it's over and the, the husband and wife are saying there's no chance here, God, that you would breathe life into those situations right now, that you'd give hope where there was death. God, for the person who's struggling with a physical problem and they've just kind of given up, but they stood this weekend saying, I believe that God can heal me. God, I pray that you would heal them in Jesus' name. God, for those who are struggling with addiction and feeling like, how many times do I have to go around this and, and struggle and slip and relapse? And God, that you would make this the moment that they would never turn back from. 
God, that you would change them, that you'd set them free. God, I thank you that you are a good God, that your words are true, and that you lift us up and give us hope when we surrender to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. West, at the West Campus of Germantown, all over, let's just give a hand for those who stood and had the courage to do that. God bless you.